From our nation's capital, this is Naps Chat. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter and make believe again from you. Welcome to this week's edition of Naps Chat. I'm Bob Levy, the Legislative and Political Director for the National Association of Postal Supervisors. The controversy over the Postal Service's 10-year plan, which was unveiled last week by Postmaster General Louis DeJoy and Board of Governors Chairman Ron Bloom, remains unabated. Thus far, there were few, if any, advocates for the plan other than those who hail from within postal headquarters. While the plan seeks to save the Postal Service $160 billion over the next 10 years, it also seeks to diminish the public's and the mailing industry's expectations for the prompt delivery of mail. The Postmaster General and the Chairman of the Postal Board of Governors are clearly facing stiff political, legislative, and public relations headwinds. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into that plan with American Enterprise Institute resident scholar Kevin Kosar. He's an old friend and well-regarded colleague in the postal space. This will be the third time he's appeared on Apps Chat. The last time he was on the podcast, a little more than a year ago, he was with the R Street Institute. I first met Kevin when he was a postal guru at the Congressional Research Service, the nonpartisan research arm of the United States Congress. I need to digress just for a moment to say that the American Enterprise Institute is a well-respected Washington-based think tank that veers a bit to the right. Nevertheless, the Enterprise Institute and the left-leaning Brookings Institute occupy a very broad middle ground in the public policy analysis world. Welcome back to NAPS Chat, Kevin. Bob, thank you so much for having me on. Kevin, I'd like to start the ball rolling right now by talking about the Postal Service's statutory mandate, and that means their mission. The first section of Title 39 in the U.S. Code in part declares, quote, the Postal Service shall have as its basic function the obligation to provide postal services to bind the nation together through the personal, education, literary, and business correspondence of the people. The statute goes on to state that the Postal Service shall provide prompt, reliable, and efficient services to the nation as a whole. The 10-year plan, which was recently released by the Postal Service, has been characterized as a pivot away from this mission. Is there a way to reconcile its statutory mission with the Postmaster General's vision of the Postal Service of the future? Not easily, unless you want to define the word postal services broadly to include the word parcels. So if you're a person who believes in a living constitution, maybe you can also believe in living statutes that go beyond the kind of plain intention and meaning uh, that was originally put into them. Yeah, it's great that you quoted that the postal service is supposed to provide prompt, reliable, and efficient services to patrons in all areas. USPS has been struggling to do those three things. We saw that particularly during the late 2020, starting in late November in particular, and throughout December and trickling on to January, the on-time performance for deliveries was just plummeting. And yeah, no, the Postmaster General in releasing this plan, which also had the sign off of uh, you know, the Board of Governors, is looking past paper mail. It seems pretty clear. I mean, you quoted the statute. The statute uses the word correspondence. A box, a parcel is not what we traditionally think of as correspondence. 
And uh, but he's betting quite plainly that paper mail is going to continue to decline in volume. And the plan itself does not say much about how the Postal Service will try to stop that decline in demand and decrease in volume. Instead, putting all its chips on growing the Postal Service's share of the parcel market vis-a-vis private companies. When I say that it does, the statute doesn't preclude the Postal Service handling parcels, but it just, it just indicates that the basic function is that obligation. So the Postal Service is free to deal with parcels, just that it's reprioritizing what its obligation is. Absolutely. I mean, we know that the great mail order companies like Sears Roebuck, you know, they built their catalog business on small parcels being carried by the Postal Service late 19th century, early 20th century. Heck, even when I was a kid in the 70s, looking through the JCPenney or Sears catalog and ordering stuff there through there or hoping mom and dad would do that, that was a that was a thing. Uh, so the Postal Service has always had a hand in parcels, but you know, if you go back 15 years, I mean, parcels were a tiny percentage of its revenue. Fast forward to today, parcels are something like 30 billion of the Postal Service's 70 or so billion dollars in revenue. And, you know, the fundamental nature of the business, you know, is just shifting from paper to parcels. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and leading up to the presidential election, President Trump actually was sort of dissuade, trying to dissuade the Postal Service from pricing competitively in the parcel market. But, you know, so within that context, and there was a lot of political noise going on with regard to political activities surrounding the 220 election, and the Postal Service did extremely well in uh, providing the services uh, necessary to the conduct of mail voting and so forth. But in a large part, the service and the on-time performance of the Postal Service suffered, as you referenced earlier on, to a number of, among other things, unpopular operational changes made by the Postmaster General. But the work of the postal employees and a number of federal court rulings put a bright light on postal performance. And at a hearing that you recently testified at, you referenced that the traumatic decline in postal performance, we don't know what exactly that was attributable to. Uh, Some would say it's employee availability. Some would say, as the Postmaster General, that the airlines weren't running on time. It could be uh, the surge in uh, holiday mail. We don't know. Uh, you you challenged, I didn't say challenged, but you asked the Inspector General of the Postal Service to perform an audit as to what could have contributed to the decline in performance. Have you seen anything? And how do you think that probably played into the development and unveiling of the 10-year plan? Yeah, okay. Um, That's a lot to unpack, I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me, so the Postal Service Inspector General did take a look at the late summer on-time delivery performance decline in a report last autumn and did lay some fault at the feet of the the postmaster general. He took over in June and then in July, all of a sudden we saw this performance slide and there were these stories by the Washington Post and elsewhere saying that he had required the trucks to leave on time and that he was cutting overtime and that these were somehow attributable or should be blamed for the performance fall off. You know, the overtime thing turned out to be not true. In fact, the Postal Service spent more on overtime last year than I think they have in any year. But there was operational confusion. 
And so that was that was put at the feet of of DeJoy. But that was not the only variable at play. One of the things that the Postal Service 10-year plan mentions is that you know, as of you know, last month, say February, Postal Service has had to quarantine over 120,000 employees. That's people who they were counting on to do a specific job, not being able to show up for weeks. And when your workforce is 640,000, having, you know, <laughs> almost a fourth of it out sick for weeks at a time is a serious factor. But unfortunately, Postal Service has been so hesitant to share those data and many other data about when people were getting sick and what the sickness levels were, that it's hard for those of us on the outside to understand, like, how bad was it with personnel outages in late November and December when performance really got bad? Yeah, yeah because we, um, yeah, cause we don't know, like, we know performance got really bad in, uh, like, northern Ohio, or in yep. or in Michigan, but we don't know. Do we know that that's where the employee availability really suffered? We don't have that data. You're saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we know that the Postal Service, we or at least we learned recently that in December, the number of, of packages that that hit the Postal Service was astronomical. It was more than they've ever dealt with. And you know, it's been an interesting thing to watch. We we know the Postal Service's infrastructure is built for paper whether it's the trucks, the facilities, the sorting machines, vast majority of what they do is built around paper. Even the mail bags on the shoulders and the mail carts that they push, not designed for parcels. But the parcel load is really going up year after year after year. And the question I have is, did we hit that point last year where the system was simply overwhelmed? You know, a paper-based processing system can only take so many parcels before it seizes up. Is that what happened? And that's why I want the IG to get in there for a deeper analysis, because we had that late summer dip in performance, and then we had a sort of recovery, and then things went kerflui in late autumn, early winter. And, and figuring that out is key so that we, you know, A, cannot go through that sort of mess again, but B, so that we can actually fairly judge the Postmaster General's performance. Could he have done something differently that would have made things work better? He threw a ton of money at it. They spent $83 billion, most of which was on compensation last year. Was there more he could have done? I don't know. Uh, and we won't know until we get a clearer sense of the kind of fact, all the factors involved in the mail volume or in the mail performance drop off and, um, you know, work out the causality. Because if we don't know the causality, the 10-year plan is might be solving the wrong problem. Is that would that be accurate? You know, at least in the short term. Yeah, I mean, DeJoy in the 10 year plan very clearly assigns blame to at least two factors explicitly. One of them is the reliance on FedEx airplanes to move first class mail, some portion of first class mail, and also you know, some, some periodicals or uh, periodicals and some first class parcels. I believe. And he says that, you know, FedEx was hit by COVID and there was a high demand for space on FedEx planes. And so the Postal Service, you know, often got bumped or couldn't get space. And that just, you know, caused backups. That was one thing. So he wants to take as much of that stuff off the airplanes and put it on the ground because the Postal Service controls its own ground network. And so that'll remove an uncertainty. The other thing he has said is that he wants to buy a lot more machines to sort parcels. I think they already have a procurement going for more than 100 machines for parcel sorting. 
and then of course they've got the procurement that they announced for new vehicles which are also designed to better handle the parcels so he's explicitly pointed to those two things in his plan as aimed at trying to get performance you know more consistent yeah, kevin a large part of the plan relies heavily on Congress passing legislation to repeal the retiree health prefunding requirement, which we've talked about uh, considerably over the past number of years, and Medicare integration for future postal retirees. The Postal Service assumes about $44 billion in savings from the enactment of these two policies. In addition, it's counting on the White House to adjust the retirement formula for projecting Postal Service's liabilities. And that would save around $14 billion. So we're talking about $58 billion in savings due to players outside of their direct control. Do you think that Congress and the White House will implement such a narrow policy, I mean, although it's significant financially, but such a narrow policy, or would use the opportunity right now to pass measures to push back on the, the controversial non-legislative parts within the 10-year plan? Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good question. You know, the present chairperson of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, uh, Representative Carolyn Maloney of New York, the discussion bill she had shared about six weeks ago uh, and held a hearing on, it had those components that you describe, Medicare integration, uh, civil service retirement system adjustment, which together would save the Postal Service $58 billion over a 10-year window. And um, she also had in there a process for kind of setting a floor on service standards. And I think that was an attempt at a sort of preemptive strike at the 10-year plan, which had not yet been announced. There had been, you know, for months talk that DeJoy was looking at possibly slowing a portion of the mail down a bit in hopes of saving some money. And so there was that component in the in the existing bill. So with that already kind of out there as a beginning negotiating position, where do we think this is going to go? The answer is, I'm not sure. We know Congress has become very fond of using omnibus vehicles, these massive multi-thousand page pieces of legislation to do stuff. And they throw in, you know, everything but the kitchen sink. And so the one question I have is whether uh, Democrats might try to do that, A, because it's easier, because, you know, when it's an omnibus, I think there's a lot of pressure for everybody to stay on board. <laughs> um, you can't just fall into the typical, you know, postal politics of feuding stakeholders that, you know, there's a lot of other bigger considerations. And I also, you know, am not clear on how the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee feels. And you know, will they calculate that the best thing to do is to kind of go with the Maloney bill, have those floors in for you know delivery performance and just do the Medicare and the CSRS thing and leave it at that? Or, you know, are they going to be forced to bargain with Republicans who are going to want other stuff put in there? What exactly I'm not clear on, but they're going to want something. And with the Senate split 50-50, unless you're going to run this thing through reconciliation, you got to wonder what the Republicans are going to do. And it seems unlikely to me that the Republicans will just say yes to the Maloney bill and ask for nothing in return. But when they ask for something in return, will that ask in some way, shape, or form follow everything? Which would then leave DeJoy in an interesting spot. 
he's trying to get $160 billion in total savings. He claims he can do $102 billion of that on his own, basically. But the other $58 billion he needs Congress for. So stay tuned. You talked about uh, competitors a couple of moments ago, and one of the ironies relating to the 10-year plan is the stakeholder response to the apparent shifting in postal mission. Historically, postal competitors fought against private express statutes and wanted access to the delivery of correspondence. Now many of those very same competitors argue the Postal Service should exploit the monopoly, concentrate on correspondence, and not expand its parcel presence. And they're arguing that the Postal Service's obsession with parcels is adversely impacting first-class performance. I just yep. look for your response to the irony of former competitors in the correspondence market and expect expedited mail market now saying the Postal Service should stick to its knitting. Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's, what's the metaphor? The enemy of my enemy is my friend or whose ox is getting gored? Yeah, no. I mean, it wasn't too terribly long ago that there were great concerns that the Postal Service was using its monopoly power you know, over first class, over letters and such, to reap you know excessive profits i mean that's why we had to have a you know supposed to regulatory commission and the rate cap and this that and the other so we had to constrain this beastly monopoly uh and stop it from cross subsidizing its parcel business you know now you pick up the postal service's 10-year plan and you look at it and you go wait a minute they're saying the plan is to basically make parcels pay for postal service um, <laughs> you know, that's where the growing market is. You know, to be fair, uh, DeJoy has said he does want to try to, to, to earn about 35 to $52 billion over 10 years by jacking up the uh, postage rates on paper mail. Uh, but the future is, uh, the future is parcels. And, you know, I, it wasn't, what was it, eight, nine months ago that we had People, particularly on the political left, saying that DeJoy was put up to running the Postal Service by Trump for the express purpose of not only wrecking vote by mail, but destroying the Postal Service so that its pieces could be sold off to the private sector. Now we have a 10-year plan that says the Postal Service's future depends in part on the Postal Service trying to eat the private sector's lunch in the parcel business. Amazing. Oh, how things have changed. Now, this plan doesn't operate in a vacuum, and we all realize that. The Postal Regulatory Commission will weigh in. It has to issue an advisory opinion. Um, it's required by law to do so on uh, changes that have nationwide basis. The federal courts may have a say. There's also there's noise going on about challenges to the plan that's being heard. But I want to explore another potential issue uh, to impl implementation of a plan because it's going to be it's a 10-year plan. It isn't a two-month plan. It's going to take some time. There were three presidential nominees to the Board of Governors awaiting Senate confirmation. It's likely that a confirmation hearing will be held soon. What impact would their confirmation by the Senate have on implementation of the plan? Yeah, that is a tough question to answer. We have six sitting governors at the moment out of nine. And uh, we have three who've been nominated. You know, Ron Stroman, who's a name familiar to us in the postal world. Uh, Amber McReynolds, who's a chief executive of the National Vote at Home Institute. And Anton Hajar, former general counsel of the uh, American Postal Workers Union. 
you know, I think there are many Democrats on the Hill who kind of bought in last year to the caricature of Louis DeJoy as Mephistopheles, evil, evil figure, a Trumpy fundraiser who was going to wreck the Postal Service and line his own pockets in the process of it. And, you know, any number of Democrats on the Hill have their name on letters saying, you know, the board should fire DeJoy or, you know, Biden should force the entire board of governors to quit so he can replace them all. Uh, so we can get rid of DeJoy because it's got to be the board that fires DeJoy. And reality is not quite going their way yet. Uh, you know, Ron Bloom, who heads the board, is Democrat, and he has been sticking with DeJoy. And uh, he, Ron Bloom put his name on the 10-year plan. And by law, the board of governors can only have five Democrats. If the Senate, and we know how dilatory it can be in moving nominees, if the Senate does approve all three of these individuals, say in the next five months, put it on an expedited timeline, you'll still you'll have five Democrats, you'll have three Republicans, and then you'll have Amber McReynolds, who is an independent, and who from all impressions I have of her, you know, my direct interactions with her, is very independent mind and should not be assumed to be somebody who's grinding an ax to lop the head off of Louis DeJoy. I mention all that just because for DeJoy, I don't think he has to worry about getting fired right now. I think he has every incentive in the world to make change happen as fast as possible. I mean, he already has an atrocious image amongst Democrats and in a lot of the media. He's been portrayed as this very bad guy. He has to break that image. And the way you break that image is you get the mail running on time and you don't create needless political drama. And you hope it blows over and people kind of look at you a little bit differently. And uh, so I think he, I think he's going to go full steam ahead. I don't think he's going to wait. I don't think there's a whole lot of advantage in waiting. And I don't think there's uh, anyone on the board telling him to, to, to hang back. The interesting thing about Ron Bloom is that he's in his holdover year. So if Biden would nominate someone in the interim to replace Ron Bloom, that would in fact signal some White House uh, putting its finger on the scale, wouldn't it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, I, I would say that, you know, that, that would be a signal for sure, but that the Senate being what it is and its workload being so immense, I mean, they've got a, the Senate's got to move something like more than a thousand nominations. Postal, much as we think it's the most important thing in the world, tends not to be viewed as a Senate by the, as a Senate as the most important thing. So unless Chuck Schumer really feels strongly about it and decides that he's going to move nominations of postal boards of governors to the top, DeJoy's got time. And the question is, can he use that time well? Because we haven't seen a, a, a board of governors just boot a PMG to the curb for poor performance in memory. What you had, yeah, because I, I think what you had back in the uh, I, I, earlier with Marvin Runyon is you had him attacked at the at the outset when he had a, his reorganization, but then he, mm -hmm. he he backed he backed out of the a lot of those changes um, in deference to congressional uh, response. Uh, you don't see this happening right now. No, no. I mean, DeJoy. I think tried to shore up some political support on Capitol Hill, 
by explicitly rejecting reducing the number of days of delivery of paper mail. I mean, his plan says over and over, six days for paper, seven days for parcel. Um, he's not going to try to seek savings by going to less than six days for paper mail. Because, you know, that that's just such a non-starter on Capitol Hill. Let me ask um, you, you know, let me ask you something about what people value these days. Now, your former employee, the Congressional Research Service, recently published a report entitled Mergers and Acquisitions in the Digital Markets. Ordinarily, my eyes would glaze over when skimming like a document like that. But two sentences caught my attention. One was that Amazon has reportedly invested $60 billion since 2014 in its building out its delivery network. And CRS opened that the company will strengthen its position in the e-commerce by providing, quote, faster delivery, end quote. One of the most damning indictments on the 10-year plan and of members of Congress is the lower speed expectations of the Postal Service. You know, as Amazon and other major online retailers build out their delivery network and prioritize speed within this 10-year plan that the Postmaster General is promoting, where does the Postal Service go? If, if, if mailers value speed and we're slowing it down, the mail, where does he go with it? Yeah, 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 for sure. The, you know, the media's kind of immediate frame of the 10-year plan, you know, they reduced almost 60 pages to the phrase, slower mail, higher prices. I think the first thing the U.S. Postal Service has to do is communicate that the plan is about more than that. And there are things in there that I think that are going to resonate positively. You know, DeJoy wants to give postal workers a better vehicles so they're not driving around those old rattle traps with no air conditioning and all of the other issues, a better sorting machine. He's worried about worker turnover, particularly among the non-permanent employees. So he wants better working conditions and wants to help those folks make sure that they can see a kind of career path uh, for them at the Postal Service. He wants to grow the Postal Service revenue at the expense of the private sector. You know, he's talking about raising the price on paper mail, but you know, the reality is it's not the person who goes up to the counter and buys the 55 cent stamp and sends a, a letter to their Aunt Polly. It's the major mailers who are going to be hit with these price increases. And I think if you ask a lot of Americans, their response will be, so what? I'll get less junk mail. What do I care? So there's a whole lot in this plan that if it is communicated, you know, could resonate positively with the public. But we know the public is not the main customer of the Postal Service. They are beneficiaries of it and they're minor customers. The real customer are the major mailers and to a lesser extent, the you know, major you know, parcel shippers. And the major mailers, yeah, I, I think they're pretty dismayed. They're not happy. They're facing you know, up to $50 billion in additional postage fees over the next 10 years. And uh, I think that the Postal Service needs figure out how to work with them because they are still the major customer of the Postal Service. And if the Postal Service is not careful, they could create a death spiral in mail volume. I think, uh, Kevin, I, I have lots more questions to ask you, but I think we're about to run out of time. So I just wa I want to thank you, Kevin, for uh, joining us today on Naps Chat. Thank you. Bob, it's always a joy. Again, that's Kevin Kosar, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. If you enjoy Naps Chat, please leave a positive review in the Apple Podcast Store, and more important, 
Tell your friends to download our podcast and listen in. Be well and safe till next week. I'm gonna stand right down and write myself a letter and make believe.